Hello and welcome to the Lancet Respiratory Medicine podcast. It's January 2022 and I'm Diana Stanley, Deputy Editor of the Lancet Respiratory Medicine. This month I'm delighted to be joined by Eileen Rubin, President of the AIDS Foundation, who was an author and patient advocate for the position paper on Advancing Precision Medicine for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, published in our issue this month. Welcome Eileen and thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Can you give us some background about yourself and your experience of having AIDS and how you became a patient advocate? My name is Eileen Rubin, and at the age of 33 years old, in May 1995, I was an attorney who was suddenly suffering excruciating lower back pain. I went to an internist who did a full exam, and upon finding nothing wrong with me, told me I must have pulled a muscle. Although I protested that I had not, she sent me home with two muscle relaxants. Over the next two days, the pain increased intensively, and I was also having difficulty breathing and pain in my chest. I went back to the internist and saw her associate. He did a cursory exam, relied on previous medical notes, and did not do any medical tests. Instead, he prescribed me more of the same medication that my previous doctor had given to me and sent me home with. The next morning, I woke at 5 a.m. in terrible pain. I had to crawl out of bed to get to the bathroom. I called the doctor's service and spoke to the same doctor shortly thereafter, the one I had seen the day before. I explained how much worse I felt and how difficult it was to breathe. He told me, to call back at 10 a.m. and talk to my own doctor. That was five hours later. So I waited the five hours. I called my doctor, and after listening to my explanation of my pain, discomfort, and difficulty breathing, she said, we saw you yesterday. We will not see you today. I was floored. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I should react. I knew I needed to be seen by a doctor. I knew I needed help. At that time, I was on an HMO and still needed a referral to get to the emergency room. So even though logically I knew someone with chest pain should be in an emergency room, I was afraid such a visit would be deemed medically unnecessary. Finally, I found another name of an internist who agreed to see me later that afternoon. At 4 p.m., when I went to see that third doctor... I was struggling. I could not walk unassisted. My blood pressure was 70 over 50. There was blood in my urine and I was disoriented. That doctor took blood immediately and ordered an outpatient chest x-ray. He did tell me that if I went to the hospital for the chest x-ray, the hospital would admit me because of how sick I was. Not realizing that I was so sick, I did go home. I went to the outpatient chest x-ray location and went home. The next morning, very early on Friday, June 2nd, 1995, I received a call from that internist telling me I needed to go to the emergency room immediately. My white count was three and a half hot times higher than normal. I went directly to the hospital and they put me on oxygen. I spoke to a pulmonary specialist in the emergency room who advised me that my condition had worsened, if it had worsened, I would need to be ventilated. 
but I was incapable of understanding everything that was being told to me at that time. I didn't know what being ventilated meant. I didn't know the extreme situation I was facing. That day I was admitted directly into the ICU and that night my kidneys failed. I was told I was in septic shock. The next day I felt slightly better. However, Sunday morning I told my mother with pure desperation in my voice, I can't breathe, I think I'm dying. My mother ran out to the hallway where the doctors were told that they had just seen me and I was fine, that I was probably just anxious, but my mother persuaded them to come into my room. And one look at me by the doctors and my family was pushed out of the room, a code was called, and for over two hours, my family didn't know whether I was dead or alive. When my family was finally allowed back in the room, I was now on life support and attached to many machines. Initially, doctors were not sure what was causing my condition, but eventually they realized I had acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. I was in a medically induced coma and suffered multiple pneumothoraxes, eventually requiring five chest tubes in all. I required eight units of blood through my hospitalization. I suffered fluid, fluid overload. I had to have a tracheotomy. My spleen died away by 90%, almost necessitating its removal, though I was too sick for surgery, so I didn't have it removed. I suffered a hospital psychosis, a delirium, narcotic withdrawal, a hospital-acquired infection in my trach, causing the fevers of over 105 degrees, and I became vent-dependent, among other complications. I spent my first two weeks in a medically-induced coma until doctors held a family meeting and said there was nothing else that they could do to help me, and they recommended terminating life support. They said I would never breathe on my own again, that I had likely suffered brain damage, and it was a quality-of-life issue. My doctors were told to, to keep doing whatever they could do to save my life. I was only 33 years old at the time. The next two weeks, I was still in a medically induced coma, suffering gravely. But finally, after those four weeks on the ventilator and uh, intubated, they were finally able to take me out of the drug-induced coma. At this point, late at night, the hospital staff decided to transfer me to a step-down unit because a single room was available. But no one told me that the reason why they were transferring me was because I was being transferred to a single room. And at this point, I became very anxious. I was being taken away from the people I knew and trusted in the medical ICU unit. At the same time that I was transferred, my sedating medications were discontinued. So I was anxious and distressed. And within days, I was thrown into, this threw me into a hospital psychosis, delirium, and drug withdrawal, which hospitals believe might have been brain damage. At the time, they weren't sure. It took days before I had a neurology consult and a battery of tests to rule out any other conditions. 
When I came out of my medically induced coma, I was completely deconditioned. I didn't have the strength to even will my hand to move in order to try to trust, press the call button for the nurse. Since I was trached, I could not communicate in any manner whatsoever. The desperation one feels when their mind is functioning, but they cannot communicate is beyond frustrating. This is so critically important to know how a person feels when trapped in their own body. This is why it is important for patients to have options to improve their methods of communication, be it via communication boards or apps or just a homemade board created by family with frequently used words and pen and paper available for the patient. But at this point, I couldn't even write with a pen and paper, so a board would have been quite helpful. After eight weeks on the ventilator and nine weeks in the hospital, I was finally discharged home. It took me five years from hospital discharge to even think about becoming a patient advocate. First, I had to recover. I gave birth to my two children. And then five years later, I realized that I was ready to finally do something to give back. At that point, I decided with a colleague to create Arts Foundation in December of 2000. And when we began our organization, our sole goal was to create a plain English brochure so that patients and families in the United States could easily understand what Arts was, what it was about, what it meant in plain English. After we created the brochure, we did a very basic website, but much to our surprise, we received contact from people all over the world. And that was when we realized the need for information about acute respiratory distress syndrome was so great. And as the years passed, I became more involved with patients, sur survivors, families, medical professionals doing ARDS research. I began speaking at various conferences and sharing the patient and family perspective. I became a member of the Public Advisory Roundtable at the American Thoracic Society for nine years and was a member and participant of various ATS committees, as well as being asked to participate on other committees. Later, I engaged in medical research with two medical professionals as ARDS Foundation was awarded a PCORI Tier A Pipeline to Proposal award investigating humanizing critical care for patients and families. Why do you feel it's important to have patients involved in research, peer review, and guideline development? It is so important to have patients involved in medical research, peer review, and guideline development because research is really about the patient. These areas are about the patient and what is important to them. So while mortality might be the most important endpoint in a research study to physicians or scientists, that may not be what is most important to patients. Patients may feel that getting off the ventilator, regardless of how long they live, is the most important thing that they do. Patients may believe that going home is an important endpoint. They may feel that socializing with their loved ones is more important than getting back to work, or they may feel like getting back to work is the most important thing that they can do. But by having patients involved in the process, the research 
and the peer review, the guideline developments, those are things that the medical community needs to learn firsthand about what is most important to the patients and the people that take care of them. This is who the research is being done for, and this is why it is so important. How do you think doctor and research goals can differ from patient goals regarding treatment for ARDS? Doctors and researcher goals can differ from patient goals regarding treatment for ARDS because, as already stated, the physician goals in a clinical trial may be mortality or maybe some other endpoint, whereas the patient goal may be as simple as getting off the ventilator, getting out of the hospital, getting to their home, being able to communicate, being able to be more mobile, uh, feeling more social, um, being able to think cognitively. These might be more important endpoints and goals than what the doctors and researchers think. What are the key aspects that need to be addressed in ARDS from a patient perspective? These key aspects are multiple. Of course, prevention of ARDS is key, as well as early detection. The earlier that ARDS can be detected, the better. If ARDS was detected earlier, patients would likely suffer fewer complications. And if they survived, their survival would be likely with less complications. If a patient spends less time on a vent, they are likely to suffer many of the adverse effects that could occur during the ICU than someone who's on the ventilator for a longer time. Uh, Things like early mobility. When that's introduced more quickly to a patient in the ICU, the patient will become more likely to be mobile more quickly. And becoming mobile more quickly will change everything for that patient. And if it is, and it is extremely important that delirium be addressed for the ARDS patient while they're in the ICU. Delirium is one of the issues that tends to plague ARDS patients for many, many years after their survival. And many ARDS survivors gauge how well they survived ARDS based on the level of their delirium in the ICU. So I think that uh, delirium is one of those things that is underestimated in importance uh, from clinicians and from a patient perspective, it is one of the most important things that happens during a hospitalization for ARDS because most patients do suffer delirium and the delirium does affect them profoundly. But of course, it is true that mortality is important. You know, survival is one of the most important things because too many people are still dying from acute respiratory distress syndrome. Too many people are getting it and too many people are dying with um, a rate of over 200,000 people in the United States alone each year and almost half of them dying, it is too high a number that, and not enough is addressed from a patient perspective. Not enough is being done. But also 
Finally, uh, things that need to be done are um, things that have to do with post-intensive care syndrome. So the issues that our survivors suffer following their hospitalization need to be addressed, and we need more PICS units, more post-intensive care units at hospitals so that patients can go to a center and be seen by a team of doctors so that they can address their post-ICU concerns all at once and in an organized manner and a way that they can find hopefulness in their recovery of the conditions that they have suffered while in the ICU. You can read the position paper on advancing precision medicine for acute respiratory stress syndrome at thelancet.com. Thank you to Eileen Rubin for talking with us today and thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast.